Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Hello and welcome to this session on how is mental health understood in different countries and cultures as part of the AKC course. My name is Graham Thornycroft and I am Professor of Community Psychiatry at King's College London. First of all, a word about how to navigate the session. I'll refer as we go along to each slide by number, which you'll see at the bottom right hand part of the screen. So simply change to each numbered slide as I invite you to do so. Thank you. Slide two. So a sense of the plan of this talk, I want to tell you a little bit about the big picture in terms of the worldwide situation for mental health. I want to say something both about understanding and misunderstanding of mental illness, especially focusing on the idea of stigma. And then I want to give you some examples about where we are making progress around the world in terms of mental health. Slide three, please. So first of all, the bigger picture. You'll see quite often um, stories saying crisis, tragedies, monumental suffering in various news outlets and newspapers and so on. Slide five, you'll see really horrific headlines in relation to the global toll, for example, of suicide. One person dies by taking his or her own life every 40 seconds around the world. Slide six. And also you may be aware of specific aspects of the mental health challenges facing people around the world, for example, overdoses and the opioid crisis, especially in the United States. Slide seven. And here are some summary figures to show you the scale of the challenge. We know that um, 50 million people uh, could have been working uh, during this last year around the world had they not been unwell because of anxiety and depression. We know that there is an enormous cost to society, as well as to individuals and to families, by virtue of mental ill health, estimated to grow up to over $16 trillion per year in 2031. And the impact upon the economy, for example, although you may be aware of people being unwell, perhaps off work with anxiety and depression, in fact, three times the impact comes from so-called presenteeism, meaning people who are at work but underperforming because they are mentally not well. Next slide, please, number eight. And you can see here the overall impact of mental ill health compared with other types of health problem around the world. You can see diabetes, respiratory and lung disorders, cancer, cardiovascular and heart problems all of which have lower impact upon disability and economic productivity than mental illnesses do. So though mental illnesses are not spoken about so much, the impact is indeed greater than most physical disorders. Next slide, number nine. So I want to suggest two particular challenges. And the first is that we have a huge insufficiency in the amount of mental health care for people with mental illnesses around the world. 
These are the bare facts. About a quarter of us, wherever we live in the world, have a mental health problem every year, sufficiently difficult or severe, that we would benefit from help, support, treatment and care. And yet, even in the richest countries of that quarter of the population, only a quarter of that proportion of people actually receive any treatment. The best we do is in America, where 30% of people with mental ill health get help. But in low-income countries, we can imagine Nepal or Ethiopia, for example, sometimes 10%, 5% or fewer actually get any help at all. So the unfortunate truth is that the majority, and in many countries, the large majority of people who have mental health problems get no treatment whatsoever. We can see here a study recently published from 23 countries around the world. And the question is, in different countries, do people with anxiety, depression, or drug alcohol problems actually get the treatment they need? And you can see in the dark blue, the proportions getting help in the rich, so-called high-income countries, between perhaps 10 and 20%. But in the pale blue, you can see the numbers in the poorest countries getting help, one, two, four percent. So tiny numbers of people, of people with often severe difficulties, are actually getting help at the moment. So this problem is called the mental health treatment gap. This is the first challenge. The second primary difficulty is the quality of care that is given to people who have mental health problems. You may be aware in some countries of chaining or other forms of coercion, which are quite common. And we can see in different countries and in different regions of the world, inhumane treatment or um, really custody of people who are denied their human rights and treated as if they were criminals or worse. These are images from an Eastern European country where you can see people in a psychiatric hospital spending large amounts of their waking hours simply watching television or being given so-called fresh air and exercise in these pens. And this I find is a very poignant image in one of these large hospitals of their toothbrushes ready for the communal hygiene session. And how, again, I'm speaking in global terms, how do we respond to this? So this slide shows uh, two things. In the dark blue is the impact of mental illness on populations across the world. And the measure here is called years lived with disability. So the issue is of all the people who have any disability in the world, how many of those are disabled because of mental health problems? And the answer is about a quarter. It means about a quarter of all the disability in the world is because of mental health problems. Does it therefore follow that we spend about a quarter of either treatment or social support on people with mental ill health? The answer is not at all. You can see here on the left for poorest countries, on the right for the richest countries, that of all the amounts of money spent on healthcare, that it's about one or two or perhaps five percent. So even within health and even within low levels of healthcare spending in the poorer countries, mental health is very much the poor relation of the family on which very little indeed is spent.
So I want to come on to one specific aspect of the understandings of mental illness, namely how people with mental illness are treated. Are they socially included or socially excluded in different countries of the world, particularly the issue of stigma? You may be aware that certainly in some Western countries, the interest in mental health has exploded over the last decade or so. And it's now fairly common in some countries to see disclosures and stories of people, people in prominent positions who do disclose having mental health problems. This is the Crown Princess of Japan. Here we have a tragic story of a very well-known actor in India who took her own life. And we have a man who's recently become heavyweight champion of the world in boxing. He's been very open about his own difficulties in relation to both drugs and depression. This is a, an award-winning um, author who's spoken eloquently about the effect of depression upon her life. Here we have the um, accessory and handbag designer Kate Spade, who also took her own life just recently. And for those who are sports fans, there are now numerous people, especially in football, athletics, swimming, talking openly about their difficulties. Now, you may have come across this man, uh, Dwayne Johnson. He is now the highest paid male actor in Hollywood. And he's also spoken eloquently about his periods of very severe depression. Another actor you may be aware of, Claire Foy described her anxiety. Uh, Barcelona's Andres Iniesta, one arguably one of the best European footballers in recent years, has talked about his mental illness problems. And now a very prominent musician, Stormzy, also talking about his experiences. Uh, Ruth Davidson, uh, recently ennobled, has now um, been able to speak openly about her problems. And this is my mother. And I'm mentioning her because when I was small, you can see me there, when I was aged three, she developed a period of sudden and severe depression. At the time, she was working as a nurse. It was called a district nurse in those days. And drugs medication didn't help her at all. She did receive electroconvulsive therapy, and that quite quickly helped her mood to improve. And in fact, she never became depressed again. She... Um, talked to me recently in quite some detail about her experiences. In fact, we wrote a chapter together about this. And I asked her what she said to her boss at that time. Did she disclose that she was off sick because of her mental illness? She said, of course not, deadly stupid. I wouldn't have had my job back. She said, as it developed her difficulties, I gradually lost weight. I started thinking that I might gas the children, that was me and my sister, in the gas oven when I wasn't in my right mind or able to think clearly. I realized I desperately needed help. I never became dressed again, depressed again, she said. I would never wish depression on my worst enemy. I hope that people are more understanding these days. And indeed, when I became interested in this issue just over a decade ago, I spent a while looking into the question of stigma in some detail before I wrote this book called Shunt. And I came out writing the book not so much about stigma, but about discrimination, and I'll tell you why. It seemed to me, uh, trying to get to the root of the idea of stigma, and in fact, 
It's a type of overarching or umbrella term containing three important elements, knowledge, attitudes, and behavior. Knowledge in part means that many people in all of our populations in different countries don't know very much about mental ill health. But a lot of the information people do have is actually wrong, it's misinformation. Attitudes refers to prejudice because attitude changes by individuals towards people with mental illness are almost entirely negative. Fear, disgust, avoidance and so on. But it seems to me that the behavioural element is in fact the most important. Do you get your job back going back to work having been unwell because of mental ill health? Do you get a job if you declare at an interview or an application form that you've had a mental illness problem? What happens to your girlfriend or your boyfriend if you tell them that you have or have had mental health problems? So thinking about what we could do about stigma, recently with colleagues at King's College London, we did a very detailed review of the international literature about how to reduce stigma. And what did we find? The single most important element is called social contact. Now, what does this mean? It means that the best way of reducing stigma is to have contact of some form between people who have experience of mental ill health and others who do not. And that contact reduces prejudice and discrimination from the people who have not had such experience. Now, moving to the bottom left of this slide, until recently, the evidence was that that meant in-person, remembering this is pre-COVID evidence, that meant in-person contact. For example, two people going to give a talk to a group of police officers or student nurses, two individuals who have direct personal experience of mental ill health and talking about what they've had experiences of. But also in the last couple of years, we've used other forms of communication. For example, films and videos, but also now social media and internet. And surprisingly, we found that that can be as effective to deliver social contact to target groups as in-person contact. And that's certainly now in the COVID area, a very important lesson. Moving to the right, most of the interventions to reduce stigma among young people have come up with the same answer. It's contact-based interventions, in this case, in educational settings. But, and there's a big but here, 85% of the world's population live in low income, namely poor countries, and there's very little research so far about reducing stigma in low income countries. I'm involved now, for example, with colleagues in India, China, Ethiopia, Nepal and Tunisia to develop suitable interventions. There have been campaigns at the whole country level in at least a dozen countries now around the world. You can see here which countries. England, we've now had a campaign for 12 years called Time to Change. And some, New Zealand and Scotland, some countries have had even longer running campaigns as well. But you will see at a glance that this doesn't include any poorer countries in the world as yet. The campaign in England has been called Time to Change. And you can see here some of the findings in recent years. 
we have been able to show that you can make real gains to reduce stigma if you take a long-term and a concerted approach. This, for example, is an assessment of intended behavior. You would say to a person being interviewed, would you be willing to live with a person with a mental health problem? You can see here um, small but still important gains in reducing stigma, in this case, over a seven-year period. Perhaps even more important, though, is the experience of people who do have mental illness about the changes in their lives. And when we've done assessments, for example, for a long time, we phoned up a thousand people with mental illness every year around the country to assess their direct experience. We saw here reductions of 7, 10, 15%. For example, discrimination by friends in relation to mental ill health. So positive gains, still not huge, but showing that you can incrementally reduce stigma over a period of time. So the idea that stigma is somehow indelible and permanent is simply wrong. You may also have been aware of the Heads Together campaign initiated by the Royal Family, including a London Marathon supporting uh, anti-stigma efforts, and also very um, positive forms of disclosure by both Prince Harry, we're now on slide 40, and Prince William, slide 41, talking about their own mental health difficulties. And here's something, slide 42, that I wouldn't have believed was possible until it actually happened. This is a webcast featuring Lady Gaga and Prince William, both discussing mental health issues and some of their own experiences of mental health problems as well. And most recently, um, Prince William has especially focused upon football, both in relation to mental illness affecting footballers, but also reaching men who, much less than women, are willing to access mental health care when they have difficulties. For example, young men, perhaps unemployed or in insecure employment, who are one of the high-risk groups for suicide. And indeed, suicide rates in the UK have been increasing in recent years. So far, I've talked mostly about the evidence of reducing stigma. The key words you'll recall are social contact in high-income countries. But what we're seeing now are very interesting projects adapting that approach for different contexts. In this case, a study in India. So this is a, a study by my colleague, and Professor Maulik. This is in Andhra Pradesh in the eastern part of India, and it took place in 42 villages, very poor rural areas. Uh, many people had little or no literacy, so this was not using leaflets or pamphlets, but the primary intervention was a short play put on in the centre of the village. Actors came and played out a story including some of the characters with a mental illness and portraying a story of challenges, but also recovery from a period of mental ill health. They used the same distinction I mentioned earlier, knowledge, attitudes, behavior, to assess the impact. And interestingly found the significant improvements you can see here. And they concluded that the social contact approach, in this case through drama, if it's properly adapted to that context and that culture, 
can also be effective in the poorest of settings. So this is a poster from the World Health Organization, really putting the key point very clearly and very succinctly, namely, it's talk. For people with experience of mental illness, it's about disclosure. For people who don't, it's about talking to people who might. And we come up here against a number of myths which are wrong. The first myth is you shouldn't talk to somebody who is or who may be depressed because that may make them more depressed and it will bring you down as well, a type of contamination idea that it sort of jumps at you. That's wrong. It's actually much more helpful to be open and to ask somebody how they are. The second myth is that you don't talk to somebody who might be suicidal because you might trigger the event and cause the death and then it's your fault. And in fact, of course, what people who may be suicidal or actively considering harming themselves need is contact, support, compassion, maybe connecting to professional help. Now, every couple of years, there's a major international meeting about stigma. And at a recent conference, the organizers produced these blocks of ice. They're about a meter tall. And you can see some cables at the bottom here because there was a very low grade heater in that tray at the bottom. And over a course of a couple of days of this meeting, uh, you can guess what's coming. Stigma began to melt away. And I'm involved now working with colleagues in about 40 countries around the world on a number of different anti-stigma initiatives. And this is exactly what we want to see in the future. So in the third part of this talk, I want to say a little bit about the wider picture about mental illness around the world and evidence of where we're making some progress. I'll start then with the United Nations. You may have come across until recently something called the Millennium Development Goals. And these were goals set in 2000 by the United Nations specifically to improve treatment and care and the lives of people with HIV, TB and malaria. Now, at that time, nothing was included in these Millennium Goals about mental illness, mental ill health in any way. And a second step was discussions leading to what are called sustainable development goals, which are running for the current 15 year period. And after very strenuous efforts by many people around the world, mental illness was included. The way these goals work is that a number of very high level aspects, such as the economy, education, and so on, Within that are more specific targets, for example, on what's called non-communicable diseases. This is target 3.4. And then within that are very specific indicators to measure progress. And we have now, for the first time in terms of these United Nations indicators, three related to mental ill health. On suicide, on substance or drug use, and on harmful use of alcohol as well. And these will now be measured periodically until 2030 to track progress in relation to mental ill health. This is slide 51. 
Move you on to slide 52. If you're interested in going into this in more detail, then I think a very good place to start is this document published two years ago now in 2018 called the Lancet Commission on Global Mental Health and Sustainable Development. It's about 50 pages long, quite a sizable document. And really it's a sort of state of the art summary about where we are all around the world in terms of mental ill health and progress to better mental health. You can see here, for example, this shows some of the issues on slide 53 across different stages of the life course. Looking at the bottom, you can see preconception, perinatal and postnatal period, infancy, school age, adolescence and youth, and going on later towards adulthood and older age. And you can see that a whole series of factors, some may be genetic, many would be environmental, many are classified as social determinants, for example, um, parenting experiences, for example, living in poverty or in affluence, for example, education, social support and so on, all come in to influence at each stage the individual's experience. And quite um, unusually for mental illness compared with other disorders, the onset, the beginning is typically in teenage years and adult, young adult life. So by the age of 18, about two thirds of all the mental illnesses that will be experienced by people uh, will have already started. And we have some shocking figures. For example, if you take the case of social phobia, this is people who feel very uncomfortable around others, may avoid crowds or even groups of people feel anxious and so on. The average age of onset for that is 15. But even in a country with plenty of resources, namely America, the average delay the time until people go and seek help for that problem is 10 years, that's at 25. So these are problems which are common, they're problems which can cause considerable distress, even disability, and yet worldwide we see people not getting help or waiting months and years before they go and ask for treatment and care. Now, in the mental health field, sometimes there can be a form of a sort of miserableism that the problems are huge and the resources are few. But in fact, in some aspects, the mental health field is pioneering in relation to the whole of health care. For example, the movement to provide community care is far more advanced in many countries in mental health than, for example, in diabetes or rheumatology or cardiology. And in many European countries, including in the UK, uh, most of the contacts of patients with doctors or nurses and so on take place outside hospitals, often, for example, at community mental health, health centres. Um, I myself work in a community mental health team in Lambeth, where we offer support to young people in the first episode of psychosis. Secondly, a wider view, not just the individual, but the person in context of the family, is quite common now. So typically, uh, the patient would be seen with family members, maybe assessed at home. There may be family therapy um, options being available to patients as well. So it's uh, more common to involve the whole family, and especially in countries with a more communitarian than individualistic tradition. So for example, in China or India, we would see family members usually involved in care. Third, it's really quite common now, certainly in the richer countries, 
to offer psychological and social interventions as well as drugs, as well as pharmacology. So many British mental health teams would offer uh, support to find occupation, psychological treatments, as well as uh, the more medical, more traditional pharmacological forms of treatment. And fourth, it's been increasingly recognised in recent years that people who have a mental illness have a higher risk of having a severe physical illness and therefore often have not just two, but often three, four, five different difficulties simultaneously. So it might be schizophrenia and diabetes and hypertension, high blood pressure. So it doesn't make any sense to simply partition and separately assess mental and physical illness. One has to take an integrated approach. So more and more, we're seeing better forms of joint or integrated care for people with different types of concurrent long-term morbidity. Now, one of the key issues that's become really very important in mental health care, mostly in the high-income countries, but also in other countries now, is the centrality of the experience of people of mental illness. We heard a little bit earlier about the importance of social contact, mainly that the only really way that's been established to reduce stigma is by the intervention by people with experienced mental illness to reduce stigma. But there's a wider question here, which is actually directly engaging people with experienced mental illness in understanding the need for services, in planning services, in commissioning services, in delivering services, and so on. Also to the extent, for example, of having specific roles among staff, so-called peer support workers, who have been through episodes of mental ill health and then use that experience, that knowledge to assist people in acute periods in the future. We're now on slide 55. But there's a further issue that's important as well, slide 56, which is the role of non-specialised providers. And it used to be thought that you had to be a very thoroughly trained doctor or nurse or psychologist to be able to deliver care. But recently we've seen in the last few years that um, some basic and effective interventions are possible and can be effective from lay workers or staff with relatively brief training to support people, for example, with anxiety or depression or indeed psychosis. This may be alongside or in some cases instead of traditional staff. Now, if you are a person with a mental illness in a sub-Saharan African country, you may find that there is one psychiatrist per one million population or less. And probably those psychiatrists will be mostly in the capital or the larger cities. And if you can't reach those centres, then you will not see a psychiatrist. So do we therefore conclude such people will never get psychiatric treatment? Or do we make alternative arrangements like training staff in primary care? to deliver such treatment, or like training people of lay health workers, such as these staff shown here, to deliver uh, interventions to people with mental illness. But before I finish, I think there's a wider point I wanted to relate to, that mental health, this is slide 57, is a fundamental human right. This is part of what the United Nations call the right to health. 
that it isn't a commodity, it's not something for sale, but that we all have a fundamental need to be as healthy and as well treated physically and mentally as possible. And I think this is important in relation to another part of the sustainable development goals that we heard earlier, which is the provision of so-called universal health coverage. This means that everyone in every country should have of right access to reasonable health care to help them navigate the perils of health difficulties throughout the life course. So we're just about coming towards the end of this session. And to summarise, I've wanted, first of all, to give you an idea about the big picture, namely the fact that we have, for example, two considerable challenges. The first is the mental health gap, that at the moment, most people with mental illnesses are not getting any help. And secondly, the quality gap, namely that where services are provided, they're often of indifferent or sometimes of pitiful quality. Secondly, I wanted to exaggerate and amplify one specific aspect, namely stigmatisation, and to stress that we are increasingly understanding that social contact can and does act to reduce stigma if it's properly adapted to different countries, different contexts and different cultures. And the third is to give a few examples, and there are actually many, of progress, for example, in the support now of the United Nations through the Sustainable Development Goals. So this is really introduction to some of these questions about how mental illnesses are seen or understood in different countries. If you'd like any more specific details, please do contact me. I very much hope that you enjoy the AKC course and you gain knowledge that will be of interest to you and possibly also useful to you in your lives, in your professions and in the future. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.